Hello and welcome to our London History Podcast, where we share our love of London, its people, places and history. This podcast is designed for you to learn things about London that most Londoners don't even know, all in 20 minutes. I am your host, Hazel Baker, qualified London tour guide and CEO of LondonGuidedWalks.co.uk. If you like what you hear, then please rate and review on Apple or Google Podcasts. Thank you to all of you who have left a review. It's really very much appreciated. I read every single one. You've wanted videos. You want podcasts to be longer and also for better quality transcripts. And in light of that, we have made a few changes. We are now inviting you to become our patron, which will financially support the podcast. In return, we are offering three options from as little as £5. For more information of how to support us and or to access recommended readings and related blog posts, please go to londonguidedwalks.co.uk forward slash podcast. Before we get going, I would like to point out that we are going to be talking about revealing clothing, bosoms, nipples, corsets, naked men. So if that does not fit in with your own sensibilities, then maybe this episode isn't for you. And I will see you next week. For everybody else, get that cup of tea, put your feet up and enjoy. Joining me in the studio today is the lovely Hilary Davidson. She's a dress historian, a curator and an archaeologist, and she's lectured extensively on the history of clothing and what dress means to people and culture. So I'm really excited for this one, Hilary. Thank you so much for inviting me, Hazel. It's delightful to be here. I always enjoy the chance to talk about dress. Um, So we're talking about Regency for those who don't know, and the period is between 1811 and 1820. This is when George III was ill and incapable of ruling as king. And so his son, the prince, became Prince Regent. So this is a small window in history that has had a really big impact on what people perceive as, I suppose, English dress, English manners, English culture. And we're really talking um, such nine nine years is not that much time. So that's what we're going to be talking about today and Hilary I suppose the first question is what defined the Regency style dress for both men and women? Well for women it's really easy which is the high waistline and this goes up from kind of where the natural waist sits really rapidly in the mid 1790s so that by about 1797 the waistline was sitting directly underneath the bust this is the line that we now call the empire line although that name wasn't actually given to this style until about 1907 or 1908 so for women this this high-waisted look and then the gowns became very straight and almost like columns rather than having this width and volume that the 18th century dresses had And then they had long sleeves or short sleeves, but that key under the bust is what makes Regency dress for women. Okay, under the bust, high waistline, column skirt. I mean, I'm a curvy girl. What would have someone with my hourglass figure have done with with something like this, this kind of fashion? 
Well, what you do is very careful and emphatic raising and emphasis of the bust so that nobody's noticing what's going on underneath the bust. Um, It's a period of fantastic bust support. And really, for the first time, what we have is two breasts. We've got lift and separate. And women haven't actually had sort of two distinct bosoms in fashion for about 500 years since the end of the Middle Ages. So basically, all of your glorious assets will be front and center and um, visible in a completely new way. And and that's a very effective distraction from, from a lot of other things. I might have to try that now then. <laughs> and what about Regency fashion for men? For men, it's not quite so defined, but certainly a lot of the styles of the 18th century became more close to the body. So men suddenly got an emphasis on the shoulders. They got neat waists and definitely an emphasis on the hips and legs and, well, the groin. It was visible for the first time in quite some time. So there's a new body consciousness for both men and women. So is this where we get this idea of male beauty from this, this inverted triangle shape? It absolutely is. It's the first time that really comes in. And while there's a lot of uh, what's considered to be kind of classical influence from ancient Greece and ancient Rome, uh, an interest in these periods had been growing throughout the 18th century. For women, that's sort of quite obvious in the sort of the white marble statuary look. But for men, if you think of those kind of quite athletic Greek statues with that absolutely the inverted V-shape, Uh, that's the kind of ideal male that they were building in cloth, as it were. And that's still with us today. You know, that inverted V and and narrow hips and strong thighs is still why guys do leg day, let's be honest. (laughs) (laughs) And if I think of, um, you know, characters like Beau Brummel, you see that flash of colour of the waistcoat, don't you? I mean, that's not going to be flattering if you're a little bit porky. For gentlemen, they also did have the option of using supportive undergarments to keep them trim. Um, so there were corsets for men, corsets or stays as as they were called. Uh, they were sometimes used in kind of for riding and sort of supportive, sportive tasks. But a lot of men who paid attention to dress uh, or were called dandies. They were often kind of uh, characterized or satirized for having wasp waists and waists and having these very narrow waists like women. But yes, there was certainly a little bit of um, support and tightening if if you felt you had a little bit too much front and center that perhaps you wanted to distract people from. All the men, they're always wearing boots, knee-high boots. Well, they didn't wear it all the time, but it was definitely a new fashion. It's exactly the same as when trainers became popular, trainers or sneakers. So boots were exercise wear. They were functional. They were for riding. And from the 1790s and onwards into the sort of the Regency period, that loose early 19th century period, uh, the Napoleonic Wars mean there's a lot more men in uniform and also the popularity of the riding dress style, which was seen as particularly English, the look of the English Esquire, made boots begin to be acceptable in fashionable dress and in the city in a way that they'd only been used in the country. So men would still wear them riding, but you could also wear them as part of your normal clothing. And where they once looked sort of super casual, they then became acceptable. I mean, there's still times you wouldn't wear them. You wouldn't wear them dancing unless you were in full dress uniform. Uh, You wouldn't wear them to court or to get married. But they became a kind of acceptable, slightly more casual, but still very expensive footwear. So there's still a class and, and status element to boots too. 
they cost twice, at least twice as much as ordinary shoes for men. Wow. And, and how did this new fashion art for knee-high boots come when there was also the, well, I suppose the invention of the, the gentleman's trouser? Well, they worked really well together because another thing that gets pulled in from military and naval dress is pantaloons and trousers. So before this, the normal, say, middle-class and upper-class men's dress was breeches, knee breeches, that would stop just below the knee um, and then you'd cover the rest of the leg with a Mm -hmm. stocking. But pantaloons were then ankle-length, tight-fitting trousers that slipped very neatly into boots because if you've got tight-fitting boots, you need tight-fitting leggings. And they were also used a lot in military contexts. So as boots became popular, pantaloons kind of come with them. And at the same time, you have trousers, which are loose ankle-length garments, becoming more popular. They'd been worn for a long time by working men and especially sailors. And as the Navy grows in might during the Napoleonic Wars and starts to become kind of Britain's superpower um, and help helps it to dominate the seas and uh, be so effective in its military, in its, its, its you know, strategies of blockading, then the sailors start to become more glamorous as well. And the trousers, which are also kind of a casual fashion, start to become more acceptable in menswear till about, by about 1820, like boots, they were normal everyday menswear and breeches are pretty much only for formal wear or if you're old and unfashionable. When walking on tours in St. James's, um, we go past the Beau Brummel statue. And one of the things that people seem to think or know, think they know, is that Beau Brummel um, invented trousers. And that's not quite true, is it? There's no one person who's responsible for bringing them into middle-class fashion, but there are people who popularised them. So Beau Brummel, with his incredible attention to dress, uh, certainly popularised, you know, very well-cut trousers. And another person who adopted them uh, was Lord Byron because he had, of course, um, a club foot, his deformed foot, and long, loose trousers hid his foot slightly better than breeches and actually gave him a sort of a better line throughout. And because Byron was terribly vain, he really liked the effect that trousers had on his little foot, as he called it. So, you know, when people like that popularising it, it really, really helps. But except, I mean, as late as I think 1817, someone as significant as the Duke of Wellington, so the hero of Waterloo, he was turned away from the very exclusive club All Max because he was wearing trousers and not breeches in the evening, which was incorrect wear. And even the Duke of Wellington would not be admitted on under those circumstances. Oh, my goodness. Olmux was an exclusive club in St. James's and you needed to have a ticket to enter even though now there are only office blocks in the place, but they are called Almax House. And it was controlled by the ladies of society who had a list of those who were in and those who were out. Doesn't matter if you won the war and liberated Britain, if you were wearing the wrong trousers, you're not coming in. So if we look at some of the myths of Regency dress, now what about corsets? Because that is a big one. You YouTube corsets and oh my goodness. And what what I found really sad in Bridgerton is that some of the actresses were saying that they had been bleeding from their corsets. And I was horrified to to read this. I mean, that, that surely shouldn't have been happening. They must have been wearing them wrong, weren't they? They were wearing them wrong. That's like saying, I'm bleeding from my bra. Corsets overall are probably the greatest dress myth there is, you know, that they were all torture devices that are 
instruments of patriarchal oppression that women are forced into. And, you know, who forces women now into their bra every day? Because that's what they are. They're bust support. You know, if you're not wearing a corset, what are you doing? to support your busts. So first of all, in Bridgerton, they didn't wear chemises, which is a chemise or a shift is the linen garment that always goes on next to your skin. And it does this so that you can wash it and it protects you from the garments and the garments from you. And they didn't give them chemises in Bridgerton. So this is exactly like if you put on a pair of running shoes and go for a five kilometer or five mile run with no socks on, you're going to get blistering and bleeding because there's friction. And so that's one thing. And the second is that, you know, in Bridgerton, they they had a scene, they started the scene right at the, at the, the first episode with tight lacing and they're always kind of emphasizing the tight lacing, but that's a later 19th century phenomenon. If you make corsets that don't fit properly, aren't worn properly and are laced too tight, of course they're going to hurt because I think they kind of want them to because there's this idea that corsets are bad. So I feel like people now kind of make them look worse and then go, look, corsets are obviously bad, but actually they're really, it's wearing them wrong in the same way that back to the the, the trainers and no socks. So yeah, it's unfortunate that those myths are being reinforced. Yeah, it's because it, I've got two um, corsets and they're steel, um, which obviously <clears throat> they're, they're my, they make my bosom look absolutely fantastic they're like on a shelf. But the, it, it, it does create that horizontal line. Yeah. Now, you were talking about how in the Regency period you have two separate breasts and they are sort of edged out, you know, and you don't see that. In, they look like they've sort of, you know, like like the wrong size bra, you know, how the boobies sort of squidging over. It just doesn't look right. Am I being picky? No, it's, it's I've I spent some time analysing this and I've worked out exactly what caused this this effect in Bridgerton. Because the thing is, you know, this is one of the most boobalicious, cleavage-tastic periods in history. So when I saw it, I'm like, but what's happened to all the breasts? They're all squashed and, and restrained. And the thing is, in Regency corsets and stays, and I use both terms because they were kind of slightly different garments at the time. Um, stays were the older word and they had more stiffening and support in them and were a lot tougher. And then corsets came in from the French corset, and they were kind of lighter garments made of fabric and rather than kind of often sort of canvas or leather, and they had less boning in them. So, But the whole thing, the key point about Regency corsets is that the two separate gussets that held the bust, so each breast, were made out of fabric and they were soft and they didn't have any boning in them. So you have like a bra cup today that actually has a soft line in it. And sometimes they'd have a drawstring at the top of the edge. So you could, you know, pull it in and make it sit exactly on the line of the bust. But what's happened with the Bridgerton corsets is either the gussets don't exist and they've gone for sort of a flat, more 18th century smooth front across the top or, and this is such a tiny detail but it makes all the difference, there is boning in the breast gussets when they should be soft. So what's happening is when you get the breast flesh, 
in the Bridgerton corsets, it's straining against a hard line halfway across it and it's kind of cutting it in half, almost like a, a hot cross bun. But instead it should be soft and that whole cup should be soft and the only boning goes between the breasts and then around the rest of the body. So just by extending the boning into the bust cups, that's why we get this odd and frankly badly fitting look in Bridgerton. And I think they would have got a whole lot more cleavage and a kind of, you know, a much sexier effect if they'd gone for the Regency way of cutting it, because it's it's far more flattering to the bosom. Yeah, I get that. And what seems strange is that they made all this effort and being scandalous with all these sex scenes. But actually, if they'd been more historically accurate with the clothing, they could have maybe achieved the same effect. Exactly. It's often more salacious and more revealing than even in our, you know, modern liberated 21st century we can really deal with. So here's another one for you, Hilary. Uh, Pride and Prejudice, 1995-96, you've got Colin Firth playing Mr. Darcy. And he takes off his boots and he plunges himself into a lake by Pemberley. And then he walks all dripping wet to the house. Was that appropriate attire for a gentleman of £10,000 a year? But he should have been naked. (gasps) Yes, yes. None of this shirt and trousers nonsense. I mean, he might have kept some linen drawers on, but he would definitely have taken his shirt off. And the producers tried to get Colin Firth to do it naked. They said, this is historically accurate. And Colin Firth was chicken and wouldn't do it. So um, it could have been a lot more period accurate, shall we say, revealing all sorts of words we could use. I'm all for period accuracy, Hilary. <laughs> <laughs> so our sentimentalities maybe now in the 20th and 21st century maybe aren't as bold as maybe we, we think they are. I'm still waiting for somebody to costume Regency clothing with the visible nipples that you often see peeping through the fine diaphanous muslin of elite women's gowns and also with men's trousers that are properly tight because if you have a look at Regency portraits of men whose groinal area is being revealed for Mm -hmm. the first time, pantaloons are made out of elastic material so sort of jersey it's got a bit of stretch in them and they're very tightly fitting or they're made out of very fine kinds of leather that are very tightly fitting and not to put too fine a point on it often you can see exactly what kind of assets a gentleman has and um, which way he dresses and we've still never seen that to that degree on screen. I think, Hilary, we need to start a petition. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm still waiting for us to get that kind of body visibility that they had in the, in the Regency period. So everybody that's listening, you are more than welcome to have a look at uh, Hilary's book, Dress in the Age of Jane Austen. I will put all the links to Hilary's social media and book and also this wonderful article that she has written called Tight Breaches and Loose Gowns Going Deep on the Fashion of Jane Austen. So you can gorge yourself on, um, on Hilary and Regency fashion to your heart's content because she is a true font of knowledge. And I've absolutely had a blast today Hilary thank you so so much thank you so much for having me it has been a delight to talk to you and I've really enjoyed it 
If you've enjoyed this, then you may enjoy episode 37, Bridgerton and Regency London. Don't worry, you don't have to have watched Bridgerton at all. It's about the history, the Regency history of the areas used in the books and the TV series. That's all for now. See you next time. Mm -hmm.